Welcome to the Thriving Wellness Podcast, where we encourage and empower everyone to live their lives up to their true potential and share valuable conversations that are translated into action steps for the lifestyle that makes you thrive. Here are your hosts, Ryan and AJ. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Thriving Wellness Podcast. This is Ryan and today's show is going to be talking in depth about an issue that millions and millions of people struggle with on a daily basis, and that's chronic fatigue. So many folks are constantly dealing with low energy levels and over-consuming caffeine and other stimulants just to get through the day, and it's really a result of their lifestyle practices, which have caused their body's underlying energy-producing mechanisms to not function properly. And trust me, guys, I've been here myself before, and I know firsthand how easy it could be to fall into this trap of drinking too much coffee and relying on all these external substances to power through the day and to get stuff done. So I recently stumbled upon the work of a physician named Dr. Sarah Myhill, who is extremely knowledgeable on this topic of energy and chronic fatigue. She's helped over 10,000 people who suffered from chronic fatigue syndrome in her 30-year career and really specializes in correcting mitochondria dysfunction, which is an underlying characteristic to so many chronic diseases that people suffer from today. Dr. Myhill addresses the root cause of people's poor health outcomes and is really a force for change in the current medical system, and I have so much respect for the work she's doing. She's the author of several fantastic books and has co-authored three medical papers on chronic fatigue syndrome and mitochondria dysfunction, which we'll be discussing in more depth on today's interview. Her website, which I'll link up in the show notes, is loaded with hundreds of really helpful articles and resources I highly recommend you check out. And after spending hours reading Dr. Myhill's work, her recommendations and philosophy really resonates with my own personal beliefs and many of the things I implement with people I work with in my practice. So Dr. Myhill, welcome to the show. Ryan, thank you. It was a very kind introduction. Thank you very much. I hope I shall make some sense to you all. Oh, I'm sure he will. So as I mentioned, I absolutely love your beliefs on healthcare and your approach to helping people get well. Can you explain to the audience what your philosophy of medicine is and some of the issues with the modern medical system? Okay. The, the single biggest issue with modern medical system is they don't ask the question why. They do not look for causation. And any problem in the world should be a, approached from the point of view of, first of all, diagnose what the problem is then establish the mechanism of that, and then you've, you've got an obvious uh, plan for the future how to fix that particular problem. Now, as I get older, my medicine gets more simple because what I find is that the basic things done really well get you an awful long way. And although I came into this area from the point of view of pathology, I was see, seeing patients who were pathologically ill with chronic fatigue and, and ME, the the tools of the trade, the way that I treat those people apply also to elite athletes to help them improve their performance. It also implies to normal people who are just going through life to improve their energy um, uh, levels that they have. You know, it's it, they're, these are universal truths, if you like. They're, they're simple mechanisms that we should all be um, attending to, to A, improve our energy levels and B, improve our longevity. Now, there is the first thing we have to pay attention to is what I call energy delivery mechanisms. How does the body make energy? Because if we can optimize that, then we will have energy to spend on life. And guess what? Spending energy is all about having fun. 
I always think energy is like money. It's great fun spending it and it's jolly hard work earning it. And it's the same with energy. It's great fun spending energy because with energy, you can be jolly, you can be extrovert, you can be funny, you can uh, run around pursuing lots of hobbies, you can uh, have a good social life. Without energy, you have no life at all. So we have to think very hard about um, how the body generates energy. And an analogy that I use all the time that is very helpful because I can understand it and more importantly, my patients can, is the car analogy. And if you want your car to go, there are four important players. First of all, you've got to have the right fuel in the tank. You know, if I put petrol in my diesel car, guess what? It doesn't go. Then we have to have the mitochondrial engine. And what that engine does is it takes fuel from the, from the body, it takes um, oxygen, it burns it, and it generates energy. We then have to have the control systems. We have to have the, um, the thyroid accelerator pedal and the adrenal gearbox. And that allows us to match energy delivery with energy demand. Because energy isn't infinite. You know, with the best diet in the world and the best mitochondrial engine, we still only have a certain amount of energy that we can spend in the day. And if you look at this from an evolutionary perspective, it was very important for primitive man to precisely match energy demands to energy delivery. So, you know, if primitive man was walking through the jungle and a saber-toothed tiger jumped at him, he had to run the fastest mile he'd ever run in his life in order to um, escape becoming um, the tiger's breakfast. And to that end, you, he would pour out adrenaline stress hormones, which would closely be followed by cortisol stress hormones in order to perform. And guess what? We know that adrenaline and we know that cortisol increases mitochondrial uh, output. Not for long, just for a window of time. So um, when I'm speaking to my patients, I give them this basic plan, as I say, they, and um, uh, you know, the uh, fuel in the tank, which is diet, the mitochondrial engine, the thyroid accelerator pedal, and the adrenal gearbox. And the single most important part of that is the fuel in the tank. And believe you me, I spend more time talking about diet and what we should be eating than all other interventions put together. I mean, people want me to you know, give them the few supplements that will, will fire up their mitochondria and some uh, thyroid glandules to fire up their thyroid, but they're just not going to work until we get the fuel in the tank right. And it's the most difficult thing I ask people to do, but it's the most important. And the diet that I ask people to do is a diet for life. I call it the paleo ketogenic diet. Now, it's a paleo diet because um, modern foods that have come in, such as grains, such as dairy products, have problems in their own right. Dairy products are growth promoting and that get, makes them a risk factor for cancer. I mean, dairy products evolve for young mammals. You know, if young mammals don't grow very quickly, then they get eaten by predators. So all dairy products are growth promoting. So yes, we need dairy products to nourish our youngsters and, and grow them on quickly, but not for mature adults. So dairy products are a problem for that reason. Grains are a problem, um, in particular um, uh, wheat, because of its gluten content, and that is a major allergen. We now know that's driving other diseases. It's high in lectins. So um, wheat is a very particular problem. So it has to be paleo. We have to be eating primitive foods, foods that primitive man ate for hundreds of thousands of years and what his gut um, can cope with. And then the diet has to be ketogenic. We have had a dietary revolution in the last 30, 40 years. Um, prior to then, um, people got their energy from fat and they got their energy from fiber. 
Um, but recently there has been this bizarre move to carbohydrate-based diets. And they might be cheap, um, they're addictive, um, um, uh, they're convenient, they're easy, but they are a disaster as far as energy generation is concerned. And um, as I say, eating carbohydrates, it's like putting petrol in your diesel tank. It might give you a short-term burst of energy, it might give you a, a, a quick upper, but then you end up on a downer. And um, swapping to that uh, paleo ketogenic diet is difficult. As I say, it's the hardest thing I ask people to do. But um, uh, what people then turn around and ask me at this point is, what do I eat? And um, because, of course, I practice what I preach. So my breakfast is a good old fashioned fry up. I have bacon, I have eggs, I have um, leftover vegetables from last night, I have tomatoes, I have mushrooms, and I fry it all in lard. And it's absolutely delicious. The point about that is that fuel, that, that fat-based fuel, um, gives me energy for the whole day. I never get hungry. I don't tire through the day. I can keep going fine. And so I don't eat in the day and I don't snack during the day. I might have a, uh, well, I drink water, obviously. I drink vitamin C and we can talk about that. But um, that sustains me through the day. And then in the evening, I have my evening meal. Now, the most, the bit of the, diet that people miss most is bread and um, dairy products. But we have some fabulous replacements. And um, for six months, I experimented um, making um, low carbohydrate bread loaves. And I came up with a, um, um, a paleo loaf, which is based on linseed. And the joy of linseed is it's very high in fiber, but it only has 2% carb. Now, you can see me making this bread um, on YouTube if you Google My Hill Paleo Bread, and there I am. And I can make a loaf of bread in five minutes, and it looks like a small brown loaf, and it cuts like a small brown loaf. These days, I tend to make buns instead of a loaf because they cook more reliably, but it's, it's a very good bread substitute. So my starter will be PK bread, and I will put sardines, anchovies, tin fish, um, corned beef, um, um, meat, whatever. That will, Pate will be my starter. And then main course will be meat and green vegetables. And I'm very lucky. I've got a garden with lots of vegetables in. And at the moment, we're eating, um, we're eating leeks, we're eating um, runner beans uh, and French beans. And then my pudding will be berries. And again, I'm very lucky. I've got a garden onto which I put coconut cream. And coconut cream, again, is high in fat. It's low in carbohydrate. And that um, makes for a very satisfying diet. And there are variations on that. So the diet is the starting point. But the problem with doing the diet is people are switching from a carbohydrate-based diet. Most people, and you can diagnose these carbohydrate addicts just by asking about breakfast, because what do they have? They have cereals, they have muesli, they have granola, a glass of fresh orange juice maybe, uh, followed by toast. It's a carbohydrate-based breakfast. And if I get that history, then I know that person is a carbohydrate addict. I don't have to ask about snacks or lunch or what they have for supper. Breakfast nearly always gives the game away. Now, the reason people eat carbohydrates is because they are addictive and we eat them in an addictive way. And what that means is that in the short term, we get a little buzz from them, which might be a little energy buzz or a little psychological buzz, and then we get withdrawal symptoms. And what do we have to do then? We have to go and eat another little bit of carbohydrate in order to assuage that withdrawal. The there are obvious parallels with smoking, for example. So if people are going through the day and they're keeping going on their sweet drinks, their snacks, their sandwiches, um, their pot noodles or whatever, 
then they are a carbohydrate addict. Now, what happens when you stop people's carbohydrates? As with any addiction, they're going to get withdrawal symptoms. Um, and, you know, and, and withdrawal symptoms are very uncomfortable. We feel tired, fatigued, foggy brain, craving something to eat, um, hungry, empty, um, all those things. And um, that withdrawal symptom will take some days and possibly a week or two to get over. And then there are other problems. Another, I, I produced another book some year, um, uh, last year called The Infection Game. And the fact of the matter is we are all carrying an infectious load, which might be bacterial, it might be viral, and it might be fungi. But what do bacteria and fungi and, uh, love to live on? They love to live on sugars and carbohydrates. So if you starve these infections of sugars and carbohydrates, they, they start to die off and we get what's called Herx reactions or Herxheimer reactions. And so sometimes people feel flu-like. Um, maybe they even run a fever. Maybe they, they feel like they've got to go to bed and they feel shivery. And the third problem is that when we do a ketogenic diet, we start to lose weight. Um, and contained within fat are a whole heap of toxins. Now, one of the tests I often do for my patients is, is a fat biopsy to measure their toxic load of pesticides or volatile organic compounds. And the results from a fat biopsy come back in milligrams per kilogram. That, i.e., there's quite a lot of toxin there. If I do a blood test, results come back in micrograms per kilogram, which is a thousandfold difference. So what that tells us is when you lose maybe a kilogram of fat, you mobilize so much toxin, toxin from that fat, you can give yourself an acute poison. And guess what? That makes you feel terrible. So when people do this um, paleo-ketogenic diet, they get three categories of, of reaction, which I call DDD reactions. Diet reactions because of addiction, detox reactions because they're mobilizing, and die-off reactions, which are Herx reactions from the infection. So they feel terrible. And they might go on feel, feeling terrible for some time. And therefore, they turn around and say, oh, this diet doesn't work for me. I got a lot worse on it. I felt terrible, it's obviously not to me, back to the wicked ways of eating carbohydrates. And um, believe you me, I spent hours and hours and hours talking patients through this, explaining, describing, cajoling, holding their hands, sending encouraging emails, because they have to get through this initial um, um, stage. And uh, say so typically, if, if, if you're not losing weight and, and you're not infected, it'll take about one to two weeks but if you've got other problems, i.e. you're overweight or you've got an infectious burden, it will take much longer. Funny enough, I've just been chatting away with a girl who's done a brilliant job and she's had two and a half months of feeling terrible, detox reactions, really unwell, and she's only just, just coming through it now. But that really is a, a vital start. Wow, two and a half months. Yeah, and I'm aware as uh, I've experienced in my practice as well exactly what you're describing, kind of these detox reactions and people who feel really lousy when they start losing weight. And it makes total sense. And just to clarify one thing, because your linseed bread, I did watch that video. It's an awesome recipe. And we refer to it more as flaxseed because I know how many <laughs> listeners are hearing that and thinking, what the heck is linseed? So it's like a, it's a flaxseed based bread. I'm going to try it out one of these days because I love making healthy recipes. And so when you're transitioning someone to this keto paleo diet, 
Do you find that it's best to just go cold turkey and have them experience all of these die-off symptoms and reactions rather than easing them into it over the course of several weeks? Uh, well, everybody has their, their own way of doing it. And uh, I mean, it's like if I'm stopping somebody smoking, some say, some, yeah, I'm just going to stop and go cold turkey. And some say, no, I'm going to cut it down. I'm going to cut it down. I'm going to cut it down. So that's very much to the individual to work out um, um, how they want to do it. I know that I'm a natural addict. Um, uh, and the one of the ways I judge if a food uh, has a carb, has how much carbs it has in it. If I have a piece of it and I want more and more and more, then I know I'm addicted to it and I can't have that. So, you know, I used to love chocolate, but I wouldn't dare have a square of your normal, you know, 30% Cadbury's chocolate because the whole bar would disappear. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, if I have some 85% dark chocolate, I have a square of that and I don't want any more. I'm quite satisfied with that. Um, um, so I would have to go into that diet, and I did go into that diet, cold turkey, effectively. But some people would want to go into it more gently. So I entirely sympathize. But the key is to have lots of good foods available. So if you feel the need to chew something or to eat something, then you've got it. And the paleo bread is so good in that respect. And with that, you can have a vegan butter. Uh, and we have very good vegan butter um, here. Um, there's a Dutch company that makes it. It's called Naturally. And um, uh, so you've got your bread, you've got your butter. Um, and, and with that, that makes a big difference. And that does help considerably with the diet. Okay. So you kind of transition people to this paleo ketogenic diet. That's kind of the foundation, most important aspect. And then what else do you do for folks that come to see you who are dealing with you know, chronic fatigue and having trouble with their energy levels? Okay. Well, I have a basic package of workup that everybody goes through before I start doing the esoteric stuff. And um, I, I give this package a name. I call it Groundhog Basic. The details of it are free and on my website um, for links for anybody to access. You don't have to buy my books to do this. And Groundhog Basic is all is the stuff I, I call it Groundhog because of the film Groundhog Day. Do you remember that guy who comes back to who tries does a day over and over again? He comes back to try and get a different outcome. So I call it Groundhog because I keep coming back to this basic package, and it's the paleo ketogenic diet. It's been disciplined about sleep. So many people are chronically sleep deprived and they are not getting the quality of sleep that they should. And so there's lots of stuff about how you can improve your sleep there. It's a basic package of supplements that we should all be taking simply because of Western agriculture. You know, the problem with modern farming is there is a one way passage of minerals from the soil into plants, into animals and into humans. And we throw them away. We are not recycling those minerals back onto the soil. So even if you're eating a perfect paleo ketogenic diet, you know, and maybe organic, you would probably still be deficient in minerals. And um, of course, plants need minerals to make vitamins. Ergo, you're probably going to be vitamin deficient as well. So again, the details of which supplements I use are, are, um, are on the website, but a base, a good multivitamin, a good multimineral, um, uh, some extra vitamin C um, and, um, um, and some essential fatty acids. So that's my supplements. And then all about pacing and, and how to, how we run our lives. You know, um, we have to live within our energy limits. And in fact, one of the clues that people are um, um, pushing the barrier, if you like, um, has to do with the use of addictions. Now, I'm going to jump sideways for a moment to explain where this comes from. Now, imagine we have a certain bucket of energy that we can spend in the day. Call it a thousand pounds for our ease. Now, we can spend, you know, up to a thousand pounds of energy every day in order to stay alive and in order to do the things we want to do. 
If we spend more than a thousand pounds of energy, we die because the heart doesn't have the energy to work, the brain doesn't have the energy to work. So the brain never allows us to spend more than a thousand pounds of energy. And in fact, when that energy gap gets narrow, it starts to give us symptoms. It starts to make us feel tired. It starts to make us feel depressed because depressed people don't want to do things. It starts to make us procrastinate. Oh, I'll do that job tomorrow. Maybe it gives us lactic acid burn. It gives us pain. So the brain gives us very, very nasty symptoms to stop us spending all that energy. Because if we spend more of that that energy, we die. Now, the problem, this is where addiction comes in. Because what addiction does is it masks those symptoms. It stops us feeling tired. And this is why... Addictions like cocaine and amphetamine are so dangerous potentially because they stop the brain giving us those horrible symptoms. We think we've got boundless energy that we can spend and spend and spend and spend. But if that if we spend more than we can generate, we drop dead. So addictions are very dangerous. Now, caffeine has that has a slight effect of of of, of giving us in a, of, of blocking that. But I haven't I've never seen anybody or heard of anybody who's who has. Um, taking so much caffeine um, that they can go over the top. But I'm quite sure that, that people do it with amphetamine. I'm quite sure that people do it with cocaine um, and possibly other drugs of addiction as well. So if somebody um, um, is starting to use addiction in order to be able to achieve what they do in the day, then they are starting to sail close to the wind. And the first thing we have to do is give up those addictions. And then we get a much better idea of the energy equation. We've got a much better idea of how how close energy spending is to energy that is available. So um, um, to to maximize our energy um, um, bucket, we have to do what I call the basic package. So sleep, um, supplements, um, um, uh, PK diet are absolutely essential. And then we move on to what I call the mitochondrial engine. Now, mitochondria are the most interesting organelles within cells. And every mammal cell in the mammal world, or in fact, in the whole animal world, in fact, in the whole plant world, every cell has mitochondria. It's a fundamental basic unit um, that generates energy. Um, And what those mitochondria do is they take fuel from the bloodstream, they burn it in the presence of oxygen, to generate energy. Now, mitochondria can go slow for three possible reasons. Um, The first point is that they don't have the most desirable fuel. Now, what mitochondria like is they like ketones. That is their preferred fuel. That is what they function best on. If you give them sugar, they don't really like it. They can manage it, but it's not as, uh, as, as, uh, as efficient as they would like to be. So mitochondria work best on ketones. Then they need some raw materials to work. And this is a little bit like your engine. For the engine to work, it's got to have a piston. It's got to have a compression chamber. Um, And this is your car engine I'm talking about. It's got to have a spark plug and all those bits. And so do mitochondria. They need some raw materials in order to work. And the most, um, the commonest rate-limiting steps of raw materials are supplements like coenzyme Q10, acetyl L-carnitine, vitamin B3, niacinamide, and magnesium, and D-ribose. So if I've got somebody who's mitochondria going slow, I give them that that package of supplements. The details of which supplements and the dose are all on my website. Anybody can look it up. Then we have to ask ourselves the question, 
are those mitochondria blocked by something? Is something getting in the way and stopping them working? So, for example, if you had a finely tuned engine and you threw a handful of sand into it, it would clog up in unexpected ways. It would wear out quicker, it would break down sooner, and it might even block an essential part. So there are lots of possible blockers that are in the environment. Some come from within the body and some come from outside the body. And one of the first clues that I got from this is during the 1980s, um, I was seeing patients who had been poisoned by organophosphate pesticides. Over here at the farmers, they dip their sheep, they treat their cattle with organophosphates. Now, the biochemical process of mitochondria is called oxidative phosphorylation. And organophosphates block oxidative phosphorylation. So guess what? These farmers were all presenting with a chronic fatigue syndrome because they were blocking their mitochondria with organophosphates. Guess what the most widely used pesticide is in the world today? Glyphosate. Glyphosate is an organophosphate. We can expect it to block mitochondria. So if you're able to eat an organic diet, then that has got to be very helpful with respect to mitochondria. But they can be blocked by all sorts of things. They can be blocked by heavy metals. They can be blocked by products of the fermenting gut. They can be blocked by alcohol. They can be blocked by addictions. Dida, dida, dida. So we have to identify, maybe do some tests um, of the common things that block mitochondria. And then we have to look, so that's the mitochondrial issue, and all these details are on my website. You don't need expensive tests. The detox regimes I put in place are simple that anybody can do without having to go to a doctor and receive prescription medication. It's all basic, simple stuff. And then we have to look at how the mitochondria are being controlled, i.e. the thyroid accelerator pedal and the adrenal gearbox. And in this respect, we have some very useful tools. We have thyroid glandulars that can be um, acquired without um, medical prescriptions. And we have adrenal glandulars, which, again, uh, you don't need a doctor to prescribe them. Now, we're seeing epidemics of hypothyroidism at the moment. The thyroid glands are being um, knocked out by all sorts of poisons like um, bromides, which are used as fire retardants in um, 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 Soft furnishing. So the reason I'm sitting in an ancient armchair is because it was produced before fire retardants were used, mm -hmm. uh, and therefore there are no polybrominated biphenyls uh, contained within them. So I'm not poisoning myself where, as I'm sitting here. Um, uh, fluoride, again, the dentists, toothpaste, water, we're all being poisoned by fluoride. So you have to do your best to avoid that. But given even the best will in the world, even doing our best to avoid all those things, Thyroid problems are extremely common. In fact, there's an endocrinologist um, in America called Dr. Kenneth Blanchard who estimates that about 40% of Western women are hypothyroid for all the reasons that we've gone through. And of course, iodine deficiency. The thyroid gland needs iodine, and iodine deficiency is pandemic. Now, uh, Paul. I was just going to mention that's huge because I find when you bring in iodine, you could also have some of those same Herxheimer reactions with the detox because what happens is bromine, fluoride, and chlorine, like you mentioned, all latch on to the iodine receptors on the thyroid because they're all halogens on the periodic table. When you bring the iodine in, it helps dislodge some of those chemicals, helps restore the thyroid. But because of that, you want to start slowly since it can cause a detox reaction in some people. But I would love for you to touch on one fascinating thing I learned from your work is how you could gather great data from the simple use of a thermometer. 
to determine thyroid or adrenal dysfunction. So can you explain to people how this works so they don't need Absolutely. to go out and get expensive testing? Correct. You don't need expensive testing. All this can be done with you know, home stuff. And, and, and this is so important because we, we haven't got the doctors, we haven't got the therapists to give people the treatment they actually need. So people are going to have to work it out for themselves with the tools they've got at home. Now, the point about this energy delivery system that I'm talking about, um, you know, say the, uh, the fuel that's in the tank, the mitochondrial engine, the thyroid accelerator pedal and the adrenal gearbox is the sum total of all those things working well is your core temperature, how warm your car is at, how warm your body is. Now, if we can assume we've got the diet correct and the mitochondria are functioning reasonably well, that leaves us with two variables, the thyroid accelerator pedal and the adrenal gearbox. Now, I ask my patients to measure their temperature five or six times a day over the course of four days. And from that, they can work out what their average core temperature is, and they can work out the degree by which that temperature fluctuates. The point here is that the average core temperature is a reflection of thyroid function, and the wobbles, the degree to which it fluctuates, is a measure of adrenal function. And we can correct those two things fairly simply using thyroid glandulars and uh, including adrenal glandulars. And the details of how to do that, again, they're all there on my website. I call it conducting the chronic fatigue syndrome orchestra. You know, to get somebody well is like you've got to, if you want to get a melody out of an orchestra, you've got to have all the players there, all playing at the same time, at the same tempo, and then you'll get a delightful melody that lasts a lifetime. And it's exactly the same with my patients. We have to conduct their orchestra. And there are lots of players, but I say the four important ones with respect to energy delivery mechanisms. Now, what we're this can also give us another useful clue because many of my chronic fatigue syndrome patients are carrying infections. And when they are carrying infections and they are, and the immune system is fighting them, we get symptoms. And those are symptoms of inflammation. And inflammation is characterized by heat, redness, swelling, pain, um, and, and, and you know, chronic gland fever that maybe have uh, swollen glands in their neck. Um, they're feverish, they have a malaise, which is a, just that they just feel ill all the time. Um, um, and, and that's indicative of chronic infection. Now, if despite you know, getting onto a reasonable dose of glandulars, the temperature is still fluctuating, that is often, I suspect, symptomatic of the body trying to run a fever in order to get rid of chronic infection. So we then have to think, which chronic infections, what, how can we um, deal with those um, using simple, you know, do it at yourself, you know, at home techniques. And this is why I wrote another book called The Infection Game. And many of the relevant chapters of that book are also on my website. Um, but um, we talked about Groundhog Basic, which is the basic stuff that we should put in place all the time. For treating chronic infections, I have what I call Groundhog Chronic because there are some tools of the trade there which, when applied on a regular basis, protect us from infections and deal with current infections that we already have. Things like vitamin C. Vitamin C is one of the tools I love to use. It's, um, um, it's completely non-toxic. It's very safe to use. It's a great treatment for the fermenting gut. It's a great treatment for chronic infection. It helps us to detox. It's an important antioxidant. And you know, my view is that we should all be taking vitamin C all the time, why? Because we can't make it ourselves. 
And one of the reasons my little dog, my little black patterdale terrier, Nancy, one of the reasons she doesn't get scurvy is she can make her own vitamin C. Yeah. So can the cows out in the field I'm looking at. So can the sheep. They can all make their own vitamin C. And humans can't. And the interesting thing about animals is they gear up their own production of vitamin C in response to infection. And humans can't do that. The only way we can get vitamin C is by eating it. And we cannot get enough from food. So we should all be taking vitamin C supplements. And the difficult bit about vitamin C is the dose. Now, people want me to tell them, oh, take four grams a day, take five grams a day, and you'll be fine. It ain't like that. One's dose of vitamin C will vary from day to day, from week to week, from season to season, with infection to infection, and with age. And we have to work it out for ourselves. And the key here is you have to take vitamin C to bowel tolerance. Now, this is a very well-established um, technique. Um, lots of good doctors like Fred Kenner, like Robert Cathcart, have established this in the, in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, and it served them well. Why don't we do it now? Why don't all doctors um, recommend vitamin C in this way? Follow the money. It's too cheap. Nobody's going to make any money at it. Um, and, um, um, and it's not good for you. You, know, you, you, don't, you it, it, takes, it takes power away from the doctors. It gives power back to the patients. But vitamin C is a fantastic tool, and it's very cheap. And we can all access it. Now, so, on the, sorry to interrupt, but on the topic of vitamin C, is there a specific form that you recommend, or do you just like plain old ascorbic acid? I use plain old ascorbic acid um, because it's the cheapest, and I think it's the best. Another joy of ascorbic acid is a very common problem for people who are eating um, uh, carbohydrates is the upper fermenting gut. Um, when foods, instead of being digested and, um, uh, and absorbed in the upper gut, they're fermented. And vitamin C helps to deal with that. A, because um, vitamin C kills all microbes on contact, and B, because it, ascorbic acid is a mild acid. So ascorbic acid improves our digestion in the upper gut. And as we get older, our ability to make stomach acid declines, and ascorbic acid is very helpful in that respect. So I use ascorbic acid because it's the cheapest, it's the best, and I recommend people put their daily dose in a glass in a glass of water or a large bottle of water, and then they drink it through the day. And that means they get little and often vitamin C throughout the 24 hours, which is the most effective way to take it. Now, the dose, as I say, is individual. And the idea, I mean, the body will take from the stomach that which it needs in order to detox, to deal with chronic infection, and to deal with the, the fermenting gut. I recently had a patient who, um, funny if I was discussing this with another doctor last night, who took 100 grams of vitamin C in 24 hours and still didn't get any diarrhea. What does that tell us? That she's either full of infection or she's very toxic or she's got a major problem with fermenting gut. So it's quite a useful diagnostic tool. It tells us about our infectious load. It tells us about our antioxidant status. It tells us about whether we've got a fermenting gut issue. Uh, I mean, some people don't tolerate it, in which case yeah, there are other tricks we can try. But most people tolerate this absolutely fine. Now, when I started getting interested in vitamin C, I was already fairly well established on a paleo-ketogenic diet. Uh, but I found I needed 35 grams in order to get to bowel tolerance. It then slowly came down over about a matter of a few weeks. And after a month or two, I needed 14 grams for bowel tolerance. And I'm now at about eight grams. Now, what that means is I take eight grams of ascorbic acid uh, in a glass of water um, every day. 
If I take more than eight grams, if I go to 10 grams by mistake, I start to get foul smelling wind. So this is something you need to try at weekends, um, not during work days. <laughs> the reason for that is um, the idea is to take um, a sufficient dose of vitamin C to kill the grams of unfriendly microbes in the upper gut, but not the kilograms of friendly microbes that are fermenting in the lower gut. So um, that's where the, the, the dose difference arises. So if I start to take sufficient vitamin C to, to start to kill some of the friendlies in the lower gut, they will then get fermented by other friendly bacteria and produce foul-smelling wind. That gets a thumbs down. If you take even more, then you will sweep them all out and get diarrhea. So um, um, that foul-smelling wind is quite a good clinical clue. It means you don't have to get to diarrhea every time to establish your bowel tolerance. You just take a little bit more, oh, oh, foul-smelling, and then you drop the dose back again. So titrating the dose takes a bit of knowledge, a bit of skill, but again, all the details of how to do that are there on my website um, and, of course, in the various books that I've written. So you can do that yourself. Very useful tool. Yeah, I find that fascinating. I've been taking three to five grams of vitamin C daily for years now. And I think it's important for people to understand you want to spread the doses out. So like you mentioned, have it in a water bottle, drink it throughout the day because it is a water soluble vitamin. And we want to constantly be replenishing our levels and also not take a full five or six grams in one go because that could cause that bowel tolerance issue. And then the other thing I wanted to mention with uh, vitamin C is also I've experienced with many people I work with and myself included, when you do get sick, you can take four or five times the normal dose and still not have any bowel tolerance because your body is increasing its need and using it all up. So that's really a fascinating thing I find with many uh, vitamin supplements is it's all dependent on how much your body needs. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and, and the details of how I deal with acute infections, I call groundhog acute. So there are three levels of groundhog. There's groundhog basic that we should all be doing all the time. There's groundhog acute, those things that we have to put in place in the event of an acute infection, A, um, um, to get rid of the symptoms very quickly, and B, to stop that infection becoming established as a chronic infection, because we now know most pathology is infection driven. And when I say pathology, I mean cancer, heart disease, and Alzheimer's all has an infectious driver. But then I see patients who have got established infections, um, which might be chronic glandular fever, which is Epstein-Barr virus or Seismogalovirus or Lyme disease or Bartonella or whatever, Borrelia or whatever, and they need groundhog chronic. So those are the interventions I put in place that they have to do constantly in order to reduce their infectious load. And the fact of the matter is, as we age, we are probably all acquiring infections and to uh, you know, improve our life quality and quantity, we should probably all be doing what I call groundhog chronic interventions. I agree. And one thing I want you to talk about a little more that you touched on is this fermenting gut issue. So many people I've uh, come to work with me have really a lot of trouble with gas and bloating and they're getting all this fermentation. And so can you explain to the audience kind of what causes that? And you mentioned vitamin C is one solution, but obviously stop consuming the foods that are causing it is probably the bigger component. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the human gut is almost unique in the uh, mammal world because we can eat such a wide variety of foods. You know, I can't give my dog um, uh, vegetables and I can't feed my horses meat. You know, it just doesn't work. And uh, so we have a, a, a gut that does two jobs. So the upper gut, the stomach, should be a sterile, acidic, 
um, gut with no microbes there for the business of digesting meat and fat. And then the lower bowel, the large bowel, is full of friendly microbes that are busy fermenting fiber because that allows us to get energy from fiber um, um, and from other starches. Now, we run into problems when we start eating carbohydrates. Because if we're eating sugars or eating fruits or eating you know, breads or pastas or potatoes, we then present the upper gut with a carbohydrate load. Now, if we overwhelm our ability to digest that, then the microbes will move in and we will start fermenting it instead. Um, so when I say fermenting gut, I mean upper fermenting gut. And that might be with bacteria and it might be with yeast. Um, but, the, the, but the outcome is the same. First of all, um, you start to ferment that food. And what happens when you ferment? You produce wind and gas and bloating. So yes, people feel full, distended, bloated, noisy guts, and so on. That's the first problem. The second problem is that foods are fermented to other substances like alcohol, like delactate, like hydrogen sulfide, like ammonia. And these compounds give us a poisoning. So we can, and, and it's called the auto-brewery syndrome, what's been given that name, because we're literally fermenting alcohol there. And, um, and if, if that overwhelms the, the liver's ability to cope with that, then we end up with foggy brain, can't think clearly, um, uh, fuzzy. I mean, if you gave me a glass of wine for breakfast, I wouldn't be able to function for the rest of the day. But that's what many people are doing. They have a glass of orange juice or some toast um, um, or some cereals, and they're fermenting that. And, you know, they are giving themselves a glass of alcohol for breakfast, which is not a good way to start the day. <laughs> not at all. The third problem that arises is called bacterial or yeast translocation. Now, I was taught at medical school that, yes, the gut is full of bacteria, but there they stay. We now know that's not the case. We now know that a small proportion of the microbes that are in the gut do get into the bloodstream, and that is called bacterial translocation. Yeast will also get into the bloodstream. And what normally happens is they find their way to the kidney and they're passed out in urine. You know, we believe that urine is sterile. It isn't. It does have some microbes there. In fact, we are allowed to have 10,000 microbes per mill of urine before it's called an infection. So most of them, we hope, get washed out in the urine. But some will get stuck in, um, in the rest of the body. Some will get stuck in joints. Some will get stuck um, in muscles. Some will get stuck in the brain. And in fact, there's been some fascinating work by a Japanese researcher called Nishihara. And he has demonstrated that where we've got fermenting microbes in the gut, we have those same fermenting microbes in the brain. Now, what happens if you've got a microbe in the brain that's, say, fermenting uh, a neurotransmitter? It could ferment into LSD-like substance. It could ferment into an amphetamine-like substance. And this could be the basis of, of psychosis and mental disease. And guess what? very good uh, physicians, uh, Carl Pfeiffer is one, Abram Hoffer is another, have demonstrated that the best and most effective treatment for any psychosis is a ketogenic diet, i.e. stop feeding the fermenters in the gut, stop feeding the fermenters and starve out the fermenters in the brain and restore normal brain chemistry. So the current epidemics we're seeing of psychological and psychiatric disease may also have its roots in carbohydrate-based diet. That makes total sense. Uh, do you find, though, with people you work with that vegetable fiber can cause a fermentation in the gut as well, since it can be hard to digest and not everyone has a good production of hydrochloric acid and, you know, digestive enzymes to break that down? 
Absolutely, yes. And therefore, for those people, uh, I mean, we might even start them off on a GAPS diet, um, which was developed by Natasha Campbell-McBride, Russian neurologist who came to this country. And her book's been translated into, I think she said, 28 languages when I saw her last. But a GAPS diet, which is just a diet based on meat and bone broth, may have to be a starting point for those people in order to allow the gut to recover. Now, the gut does recover very quickly. Um, I mean, the line of the gut turns over every two or three days, but with this diet, it gives the pancreas a chance to recover and it gives the liver a chance to recover. But very often, digestive aids are very helpful. And some of my patients take betaine hydrochloride with their meals and maybe pancreatic acid supplements and maybe even bile salts. The good news is they don't have to do this forever. I say the gut is very good at healing and repairing itself and recovering. And there was a study done in the night at Biolab in the 1990s, uh, John McLaren Howard and um, 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 Stephen, um, can't remember his name, uh, did a study where they looked at this very issue and um, they tested gut function before and after essentially um, a Stone Age diet. And um, patients who had the supplements and gut function recovered after about a year. So that's the usual timeline for people who do have digestive problems. You know, a year of taking the betaine, pancreatic enzymes, the bile salts, and of course the PK diet, and maybe vitamin C to bowel tolerance, and normal function is restored. Got it. And I also read through your work talking about the gut that you really prefer to make your own live cultures rather than taking probiotics. Why is that? And could you explain to people how they could possibly try this on their own? Okay, well, it's not, I mean, probiotics don't suit everybody, but um, um, what is clear is that the probiotics, they have to be there in sufficient numbers and you get much better results if they're live act, active ferments. Now, the problem with taking um, probiotic pills or capsules is they should be killed by stomach acid. Now, they will do some good on passant. Even dead microbes will help um, 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 program the immune system downstream. But with probiotics, it really is a numbers game. And again, I'm looking to, for my patients to save money, and um, it should be very easy to grow probiotic cultures at home. Sauerkraut is very easy to make, and it's delicious. And it's got lots of friendly microbes in there. Um, kefir is a very good all-rounder. These days, I often use lactobacillus rhamnosus because that probiotic is known to reprogram the immune system and help to switch off allergies. So if I have somebody who's very allergic, I would use rhamnosus which is very easily grown on um, coconut milk or soy milk. Um, kefir is a very good all-rounder and is delicious. And then, of course, sauerkraut, which is just a, a fantastic food and full. The, the important thing about sauerkraut is um, it will contain some anaerobic bacteria. And this is the problem with many probiotics, which is that they, they come in a bottle and, um, um, uh, and that will contain oxygen. So the probiotic capsules you will buy are all aerobes. And aerobic microbes only actually make up about 10% of the total gut flora. The anaerobes are actually more important, and you will find that in sauerkraut. So um, as a general rule, I prefer to use live ferments, and I like my patients to make them themselves and, and make that part of their diet. I love it, Dr. Myhill. So just to sum things up for folks, a paleo-ketogenic diet, take your vitamin C, get your life cultures in, make sure you're sleeping well to enhance your energy producing mechanisms with the mitochondria. You like D-ribose, magnesium, CoQ10, vitamin B3, and what was the Carnitine. fifth? Carnitine. 
carnitine, acetyl-L-carnitine. Uh, you are a wealth of knowledge, Dr. Maiho. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Is there any other thing you'd like to add that you find really helps move the needle for people? We've obviously covered a number of the kind of low-hanging fruits, so to say, but just kind of as an ending note, anything you want to share with the audience? Well, just a little clinical tip, which I just discovered this summer, which has been fantastically useful. Another multitasking tool I love to use is iodine. We talked about it a little um, earlier. And iodine, I use top, uh, Lugol's iodine, 15%, which should be part of your first aid kit at all times. Because iodine will get rid of verrucas, it will get rid of cold sores, it will get rid of any skin infection. But this summer I found that if you put just neat Lugol's iodine on any insect bite, the itching disappears like that. And it works for horse flies, it works for um, stings, it works for midge bites. It's just brilliant. So these days you never find me in the garden without my iodine. And if I get stung, I immediately paste it on and the itching is gone. So that's my tip of the year. That's fascinating. I've actually uh, found similar uh, results with using a good quality tea tree oil. Tea tree essential oil uh, does a similar thing. If you get a bite or a sting from a bee or anything like that, you put it on there right away and it can help to kind of neutralize some of those poisons. Brilliant. <laughs> fascinating, Dr. Myhill. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all of this with us. My pleasure. I hope it helps. Thanks for listening in. You can find the show notes and resources at thrivingwellness.co slash podcast. We encourage you to share your biggest takeaways with us on social media and share the show with your friends and family. If you found this episode valuable, leave us a five-star review. Your feedback helps to support us on our mission to positively impact as many people as we can with this information. Join us for our next episodes where we will be interviewing leading wellness professionals to inspire you in your health journey. Until next time.